and welcome back to the Dreamcast. I am your host, Denise Walsh. I combine science, scripture, and stories that will inspire you to dive deep, break through your own personal glass ceiling, and design a life of your dreams. Do you feel like you've not been able to make headway in achieving your goals? Or did you start the year pumped, ready to move forward on making things happen and simply lost your way? Things don't need to just get better. They actually can be better. In Design Your Dream Life, I'll show you a proven pathway to take you from where you are now to a life filled with joy, wholeness, success, and fulfillment. I'll give you the keys to not just developing a plan, but taking massive empowered action to make your dreams a reality. Turn roadblocks into stepping stones and leverage the power of gratitude and forgiveness. Let's face it, taking massive empowered action and making your dreams a reality isn't always easy. So I'll be there with you every step of the way. Visit dreamlifetoolkit.com to purchase your copy of Design Your Dream Life, obtain resources and join our free community. Again, that's dreamlifetoolkit.com. Big, big welcome back to the Dreamcast. Um, As you know, I truly do believe we can love all areas of our life. We can thrive. We can make money doing what we love. We can be healthy. We can be great parents. um, And we can do all of those things in spite of having hard stuff happen within our lives. And the Dreamcast was truly created Because I believe we all have these choices to make, right? Am I going to stay where I am? Even if I don't like it, am I going to stay stuck? Am I going to stay in a victim mode? Or am I going to take the step of courage to try something new, get out of my comfort zone and create a new life that I love? And our next guest has done just that. But I can tell you her journey and her decisions and her steps were probably harder than most of us have experienced. But yet here she is on the other side of her healing journey, experiencing success in her family, success in her work and success um, at home. So big Dreamcast welcome to... Oh, wait. Let me read you a little bit of her bio. (laughs) Okay. She is passionate advocate for anti-human trafficking and abuse prevention. She has co-created online educational tools for these topics and has written for multiple nonprofits. She lives and thrives in her mini ranch in Wyoming with their beloved goats, dogs, horses, and chickens. And she's here today to share with us why she is so passionate about this topic and um, how she has overcome it herself. So big Dreamcast, welcome to Hannah Redden. Hi, thanks for having me. Yay, the crowd goes wild. (laughs) (laughs) We are glad to have you. And um, I I think that we all do have these choices to make. Are we going to stay where we are? um, Or are we going to do something about it? And you certainly have done something about it. But before we get into what life looks like now and the healing journey you've experienced, I'd love to hear a bit about where you came from. Yeah. So I grew up in the Midwest. Um, I'm the second of six kids. So we had a big family, oldest girl. So there's a lot that comes along with that. Um, I was I say, quote unquote, homeschooled um, my whole life. And I say it like that because I'm not anti-homeschooling. I think homeschooling can be a wonderful thing. 
um, but it wasn't done correctly in my home. So homeschooling was used as a means to um, control my life ever since I was very, very young. Um, And so, I mean, my education I have now is like academically is probably equated with a third or fourth grade academic education. Um, And that, that has its own challenges, right? Kind of, you know, growing up and trying to reconcile with that. Um, I don't really, you weren't acclimated to the community or in society, you were home a lot with your family. Yeah. I mean, I did. So we did like YMCA soccer. Um, People were always surprised I was homeschooled. So I wasn't a backwards child. Um, I think part of that came with being the oldest girl. I felt like I had a lot of responsibility. Um, My older brother was very, he was very backwards and very shy. Um, So I felt a lot of responsibility to speak for him or, you know, stick up for him, that kind of thing. Um, So I think just my God-given personality has been one of a little bit more resilience. And so that's worked in my favor, even as a young child. Um, But yeah, we were very... I mean, very sheltered. Most of our association outside of soccer, it was either a homeschool group or a specific friend that we were allowed to spend time with. Um, It was very controlled who we were allowed to hang out with, what we were allowed to do with certain people. Um, And then it wasn't just the homeschool that was controlling part, but there was also, you know, religion that was a controlling part of that. And so I... You know, I know the Bible incredibly well. I know it really, really well. We, I mean, we, I read it every single day growing up. I know all the stories. I'm not great at references, but I know the whole concept of it from start to end. And um, a lot of my reading and my handwriting and everything I learned through reading the Bible, um, which I love the Bible. The Bible is a wonderful tool. So, you know, that's not to hit on the scriptures, um, but you know, they can be just like anything. It can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And it was really twisted um, to control. So our dad was seen as our segue to God. And you were like, if you were not in complete obedience and alignment with your parents and especially your father, then like you were going to hell was really the, how that was kind of taught. So just a lot of fear you know, a, a lot of like submission was really stressed um, and exaggerated that you were to submit and everything. Even once you were 18, it was stressed that it doesn't matter. Even if legally you are an adult, um, you know, an adult, like quote unquote, then you were still to be submissive and obedient to the parents. So as a child, you learned how to be a good rule follower and how to obey. You didn't necessarily get to learn what do you like and what are your what are your gifts and what makes you tick. It was really just like toe the line. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you were you were really it was like we would be sat down and told like you are here to help your father's vision succeed in life. Like you aren't even here. So I was raised like Women didn't go to college. Women didn't have careers. Um, You were a wife and you had kids. And that was like it. That was all that you were allowed to do. Um, 
And so, I mean, I had pretty big dreams from when I was very young, but those were very discouraged and very squashed um, to the point of being told that who I was as a person was a sin against God. Okay. Okay. So you are here to do my bidding, essentially. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And now, were you a part of like a religious community like the Amish or a specific religious group where you had other families that were similar? So we had other families that were similar. Um, We were not part of the Amish or the Mennonite. I was was babysat by them as a very young child. So I did have exposure to that. Um, But it was just, you know, homeschooling can can very much be its own sect. Like there can really be some, you know, very interesting sects of that. And so my parents were very much attracted to that because it was like-minded other adults who ran their houses very much the same as men as the ultimate authority, women as servants, essentially. And then as children, as a servants, even below that. And so, it, yeah, we didn't have like a name. We attended different churches periodically, depending on, you know, kind of who was preaching what at the time. Um, so that was very much like my education level of things. And then my day-to-day life um, was just very... I mean, there's a lot of responsibility, you know, a lot of like, I was very much responsible for like keeping the house clean, doing the dishes, cooking meals. Um, you know, those kind of womanly home chores that you're supposed to grow up and be responsible for. Um, so we cooked like everything from scratch and just, I don't know, we were just home. And it, it, there was a lot of, you know, mental and emotional push pull in that time. So there was a lot of favoritism in my home. I was not my mom's favorite. Um, so there was, you know, I would get a lot more of the verbal manipulation and the mental manipulation from her. My dad was on the physical side of things. Um, and that was more towards my brothers, just that really rough and tumble to a point of too rough and too tumble, right? Um, and so I don't, I really don't have a lot of memories from when I was very young. My mind is pretty blocked out until I hit about 11 or 12. And then I had kind of have some sporadic memories. And then once I hit like 13, 14, it's just pretty much like terrible thing after terrible thing that I remember from that point on. Um, Just a lot of fighting, um, siblings being kicked out, a lot of screaming, um, a lot of like my mom would just like I, she would insinuate that I was being sexually immoral and accuse me of those things, even though they weren't true. And my derogatory nickname growing up was Queenie because it was like, oh, well, Hannah, you know, she always wants something different and she never wants to serve or was just this concept of she's only looking out for herself or just, um, I don't know. It was just something whenever she said it was said in a very like, like my personality was such a bad thing, such a mean thing. Um, and so I, you know, I just kind of shoved all of that, um, for years until I hit about 17. And then I just like mentally snapped. It was like, I couldn't handle that pressure anymore of 
just never knowing what that day was going to bring. Was it just going to be a chill day and we all kind of do our thing or was it going to be an explosion or was it going to be me being accused of something or was somebody going to get hurt or it was just a lot of unpredictability um, in that routine. And um, I have a few questions about some of that, some of those years. Um, Did either of your parents, did you find that drinking was uh, a part of their normal everyday life? No. So what's very interesting is, you know, when, so when you're a child and you grow up in chronic trauma, and you have that just as your chronic part of your life, there are a lot of things that you endure that you rationalize as normal as a child. And then when you become an adult, you start to see, oh, not everybody parent does that, you know, oh, not every kid lives like that. And so I'm still, you know, I'm 32 and I'm still having those moments of like, oh, this is behavior associated with alcoholism or this is behavior associated with drug addiction or this is behavior associated with just disassociation in a parent or mental illness in a parent. Um, So I, what's interesting is I definitely think there was a lot going on under the surface, but it was very much kept behind closed doors. So I only saw the behaviors that were a repercussion of whatever choices were happening out of my sight. Does that make sense? Well, absolutely. I mean, somebody, uh, when living with, I've heard this recently, when somebody is an addict, whether it's drug or alcohol or anything, right? And they're, they have three ways to live. They're either behind bars. They are um, sober or they're insane. Yeah. Because an active person with addiction is insane. <laughs> right. You can't rationalize it. They say the sky right. is black. You say the sky is blue. You know, it does, you, you're living in two different worlds. And what right. I know is when somebody's in that insaneness, uh, everything is unpredictable. And it yes. is, and it could be like one thing sets them off, and all of a yes. sudden there's plates flying and things breaking. And, you know, so you're constantly living in this state of fight or flight, right? Where you're like, you're tense and mm-hmm. you're, you're basically like in freak out mode all the time. Yeah. Because yeah. you never, you don't have control over what's going on around you. And right. you don't know what mood they're going to be in when they come home. You don't know right. how they're going to speak to you. You don't know if something you do or say is going to, you know, make them mad or whatever. And so would you agree that that's kind of the environment at that time? Oh, that 100%. You were living in? Yeah, 100%. Right. I mean, that, that's, that was my entire life from start to... That's exhausting. I mean, being, being free of it, you know, a few years now, but still like when you have lived in that for so many years, you have to learn to unlive that. Like just, um, a few weeks ago, my, so my youngest brother was here helping us. He came to visit and we finished raising him as a teenager and he was helping us put up a fence and he is so jittery when we do stuff like that. And he's like, I don't even know how to function because nobody's screaming at anybody. And he's still in that. He's significantly younger than me, obviously. And so he's still in that mode of expecting something like that to happen because we as children, we were responsible for then either calming the situation 
or escalating the situation. Like we as children became emotionally responsible for our parents' regulation, which is just not okay, right? It's totally unacceptable. And so, yeah, it was constantly that. And I seemed to be the only one who could kind of calm my dad down. And so I think I really felt a lot of that protector mode, you know? And so I really felt that as the oldest girl of trying to kind of keep everything at a level where we could manage it as kids, you know, and and get through a day or a night and just be okay, you know, just function and survive. Yeah, you you, that's a good way to put it. You really were in survival mode for a good portion of your life, which rewires, which wires your brain in a certain way, right? Yes. Then you have to, Mm -hmm. you get get to rewire and thankfully you're in a safe place to do that now. I have a few more questions about mom and dad. So would you say that your mom grew up in a religious, strictly religious home as well? Yeah. So both my grandfathers were pastors actually on both sides of the family. Um, So I, my parents both had a like very rebellious kind of young adult stint. And so I think religion was just their way of trying to get a grasp on life. Like, and and, in essence, I have compassion, you know, for some things and understand their mentality. Not that it makes sense, you know, not that it's okay. Um, But I think their lives felt so out of control. And so my dad grew up very, um, very religious. And then so did my mom and everything was just... But there was also a lot of trauma underneath all of that. So there was that surface level of we're this great family. But then underneath at home, just like my life, you know, there were all of these like really hard, terrible things that you're enduring as a child. And trying to rationalize and survive and you don't understand them. And then they both just didn't deal with it. And so then they just reciprocated in a lot of ways. You know, I think my dad did make some progress. I didn't experience everything he experienced as a child, you know, but he also didn't make effort to get better. You know, it was very much like what, how I was taught to cope with life is how he was taught to cope with life, which is you just kind of do something terrible and then you pretend it never happened and move on with life. So yeah, it's definitely been a generational thing. Well, and what's interesting about this too is you think of their normal, you know, what's right. their normal. And even if kids have a rebellious stint, you know, we always say my brother turned into an alien for a few years in high school. I'm like, who are you? What are you doing? Right. <laughs> they always come back. They come back right. to what they know. They come back to what yes. they understand. And so yeah. uh, it sounds like they kind of came back to what they knew to be true for them, which was right. their normal. So did your mom ever get to a point where she was like, this is not okay? Or did they understand this as being their normal and they wanted it to be that way. Oh, they understood this was their normal and wanted it to be that way. Yes, very much. There's, I have taken, especially as an adult, a lot of steps to try to just find some reconciliation in there and some truth, like bring some truth to the situation. Um, But it's still a 110% like this is the way it is. Oh, it's Someone's okay. at the door. <laughs> I have four dogs. I'm just going to wait a minute. It's not even worth <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> she came to get the eggs. I knew it was going to Oh, happen. gotcha. Gotcha. 
That's fine. I get it. I know I'm in my son's let him go bedroom. Outside. Otherwise, I just kick him out. But yeah. Let me see if this helps. All right. I just shut the door. Does that help a little? Okay. Yeah, that does help. <laughs> um, okay. So, do you have any ex- any stories or examples of physical or emotional abuse that you're willing to share? Yeah. Um, I like to be cautious in this because even though I wholeheartedly disagree with how I was raised, um, there's an element of never wanting to villainize someone and, you know, having some compassion, understanding, like I just shared that they came from a hard place. Um, so I, I'm in some ways I consider myself blessed because my dad really did seem to favor me. And if you ask all my siblings, they would say the same thing. Um, So I was, I didn't experience the physical abuse to my memory. Um, There was definitely some very verbal, um, angry, you know, points where I was a little afraid of it. But what I cognitively remember for myself I didn't experience physical abuse from him, but I saw it with my brothers all the time. I mean, my dad is very naturally strong. He's a former Marine. Um, He's just a very tough, gritty guy. And so, I mean, I remember like my brothers being tossed into walls and fist fights and screaming at each other and, you know, just kind of that very typical physical violence sort of thing that you would think of. Um, so I have, you know, mostly in my teen years, I remember that stuff. And then my, like I said, mine was more that verbal and emotional and more of it, you know, I got the religious from my dad. Um, but I got the really, really deep wounds from my mom. And those were very purposeful attacks on my identity. And I've seen that in my whole life, like, as I look back, and I'm, you know, it's just the devil at work, just seeing how he very, very um, calculated from a very young age, would just come at me with these little things. So I remember, when I was 10, um, we had been at a Bible study the night before, and I was just outside playing hide and go seek with my friends, like just being a 10 year old, right, running around, they're having a blast. Um, there was maybe like 10, 15 kids there. It was dark, playing hide and go seek in the dark. And I don't remember anything abnormal about the night, just having fun. And the next morning, my mom took me aside and she had the Bible and she sat me down and she said, like, she pointed out all these little nitpicky things that I didn't even really remember, but her voice was like quivering with anger. And she was like, according to the Bible, your behavior last night was a fool and you are a fool in God's eyes. And I was like 10, right? So I'm just like, my, I just remember being floored. I mean, I was speechless. I didn't even know. I mean, I have a 10 year old. I can't imagine sitting her down and saying something like that. And because God was so emphasized in my life. You know, some kids might hear that and it's like, oh, whatever. You know, maybe they like, but because God was so integrated in my life for me to think, oh, wow, he thinks I'm a fool. Like I am a 
I am not acting a fool. I was like in my core. Does that make sense? How like deep that? Well, absolutely. It becomes part of your self image. Yeah. And what's interesting when I'm doing work with people, the foundation of everything, (laughs) you know, often like the thing that gets in the way of us accomplishing our goals and doing the thing and like finally going after our dreams and saying yes to the adventure and all of that. The foundation that we start with first is, is, um, feeling good enough. Right. Because unworthiness is like the, the fractured foundation. Mm-hmm. And so we start with that worthiness piece. And so to have somebody so important in your life saying, not only does she think you're unworthy, but God does too. I mean, right. you know, when you think about pressure, like, yes, there's right. pressure to clean the kitchen and I want to make sure it's good enough. So, right. but if like, I am a human, I'm not good enough. Imagine, I mean, I just can imagine in your 10 year old heart, um, feeling like nothing I do is going to ever be. Yeah. It, I mean, I just felt, felt older than I should have in that moment. And I just remember feeling like somebody just knocked the wind out of me. Like, how do I even how do you come back from that? Yeah. How do I even come back from that? And, um, so that, that was a very, yeah, identifying moment. I mean, as I can tell, like, I feel like it happened yesterday. You know, I can tell you what room I was in, where I was sitting, what everything looked like. And um, it obviously hit me very hard. And then it was just over the years that was continually reaffirmed. And sometimes it was snide, quiet, so nobody else could hear it. Sometimes it was glaring, looking in the eyes. Often it was scripture being flown in front of my face that just reaffirmed. And then that was where that nickname like Queenie came in of just, oh, well, this is really what you're worth, but you think you're, you know, so-and-so up here. Um, And it just continued until I was about around 17. I had another just really stark moment um, where I had been really groomed into this abusive relationship and he was significantly older than me. And, you know, I was still a minor and my mom really liked him. I mean, she liked him more than she liked me and was really determined for us to get married. And I remember I walked in on them having this very private conversation in a bedroom with the door shut and I, you know, you get those gut feelings and like, I just got this gut feeling in this moment of something here is not okay. Something is going on. And like later found out, um, that, that that's what she was supplanting all those same ideas of me to him. Um, this is who Hannah is as a person and she's always undermining people and she's a seductive, like, I don't know why this is such a reemphasized thing, but it was constantly re-emphasize that I was this seductive child, the seductive person. And um, I definitely have, like, I have blocked memories. I really believe I was sexually abused as a very young child. I have this consistent dream. And um, the first time a boy ever tried to hold my hand, I, I mean, I lost it. I was shaking head to toe. Um, just very triggered. And I didn't start to understand all of that till I was older. So it's like, I don't know if there's something 
from when I was very young, you know, that my mom knew that I didn't cognitively know that started this kind of um, like framing of who I am, you know, some sort of rationalizing. I've always kind of wondered that. Um, but that was just constantly reemphasized um, in my, especially in my teen years, you know, the older that I got. And it's just so interesting um, because I never did drugs. I, you know, my husband's the only person I've ever been with. And so it's just been really interesting how I just feel like Satan really zeroed in on that, you know, because that is another area where he could just plant another lie and steal another level of self-worth from me. Even though it wasn't true, I started to believe it about myself and just felt so unworthy. And I remember trying to tell my now husband about times when I had been sexually abused. And I just felt like I was like, he's never going to love me. He's never going to want to be with me. You know, I'm a fool. I'm, I, people are seduced by me just by seeing me. And that was something that carried over. I mean, I've been married almost 13 years now. And it's just been the last few years that I feel like I can go in public and just be a person and not think that, I have some underlying aura, <laughs> you know, that is just going to make people think or do bad things. Like it's just been such a layered part of my mentality and my view of myself, um, which is, I mean, just can be devastating, you know, to a person. You have had to do a lot of work to re program yourself in a sense and really yes. align yourself who God really says who does God really say you are outside of the religion and the control mm -hmm. and the power and the rules and all of that? Um, and before we move into how you untwisted it all, because I know that is uh, really what we all want to know, like, how did you get right. here? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you did mention sexual abuse and sexual trauma. Was that with that older gentleman that was like pretending to be your boyfriend or were there other situations? Yeah, that was the the main thing that I remember was with that specific person. Um, and so that like he would come, he lived out of state and this was a very like kind of parent-led relationship. And I was a minor and didn't have a lot of control over my life. And so I tried putting a stop to that relationship a couple of times and they would just blow over me. They're like, well, too bad that he's coming anyway. Um, and so it was kind of like an arranged relationship. It was, it was very, were yeah, they he, wanting you to get pregnant? So you would like start having a family and I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's I, there, there's that level of insanity, you know, like you mentioned. And so I really, I really don't know what the full motive was. I think part of it is he was from a very prestigious Christian family. And so there was that intermarriage that they wanted for that kind of reputation type thing. I think that was part of it. Um, and then, you know, he would portray, like he was telling everybody that he wouldn't kiss me until our wedding day. And then he would sexually abuse me. Um, at night when he was staying and I was, it was not a premeditated. It was not an agreed upon thing. It was not something that, you know, I was very much under the impression, oh, this is a courtship situation and we're not going to, if I have to marry this person, we're not going to kiss till our wedding day. 
And it was just a total opposite of that, of what was happening. Very possessive. Like I couldn't even sit by other people. Um, and there was just a lot of like, like literally if I wasn't even close enough, it's like, he would just like pull me closer. And it just felt very, very like he owned me. Um, and I remember having a, I was sitting in a room with, he was an adult. It was in his twenties, but I was, it was him and his parents and my parents and me, and they were all fighting over who had the authority over me. Like I'm 17 sitting in this room and everyone's arguing about who's protective covering quote unquote. I know we're on a, it's a voice call so people can't see me, but I just had this like out of body experience where I'm just like, I'm, this is my life and this is me. And I have zero say whatsoever on anything, anything at all, where I sit, what I eat, what I wear, where I go, who I go with, where I sleep, if I'm safe, where I sleep, you know, anything like that. And I, that is really when God started working in me. And I just, I mean, it has, there's no other excuse that it was divine for me to have that moment of recognition that like these people think they own me. I was going to go from one, from one ownership of my parents to the ownership of this man. And we were supposedly engaged. And that's why they were fighting is because we were in that in between and they didn't know who got to have say over me as a person. And I, I think it, it was that point I realized how deep in this I was. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have... like This is my life that I'm looking at for the rest of my life if I don't do something, you know? Right. Well, and I think, you know, it's, it's super interesting to think about just the, I want to say, um, invisible strings that are, um, even like an invisible straitjacket a little bit, because Mm -hmm. it's not even just like you physically, it's like, Um, I feel like when you're in this type of situation, you second guess everything. So can I say this? Can I do this? Can I do that? I'm not sure. So I'll do nothing, you know? And so there's this constant battle within yourself of, am I going to get in trouble? Is this going to... And so you're not ever really living (laughs) because you're like we mentioned the fight or flight mode with these invisible strings that keep you silent, that keep Mm -hmm. you suffocated, that keep you in that straitjacket because you don't know what will happen if you break free. So right. how did you break free? Um, well, I would go back to a lot of mental divine intervention. Um, so right after that conversation, um, and I might get a little emotional because I've never, I have never publicly shared this. Um, but it was that night after that whole happening of them arguing over me. Um, I was going to bed and like he showed up and started to abuse me. And I heard a voice from God 
that like it said clear as day in my head that if he doesn't stop right now, he's going to have a seizure. Like I just heard it in my head. Um, and I'm not kidding you, like not like seconds after the abuse was done, then he had a terrible seizure. Like it was so, it was traumatizing to watch. The whole thing was just, you know, such a jumble. And I think it was two days before I even spoke a word to anybody. I was just so rattled by that whole series of events. And I knew at that point, I did not want this to be the rest of my life. I did not want to be in this kind of relationship. I didn't want to be owned by a person. Um, And so mentally, I just started kind of processing, well, what in the world do I do? Because I was still 17 at the time. Um, And I didn't have a lot of options. And honestly, I do not... So I remember going, like, I remember going home and I remember just putting my foot down and saying, like, I never, I never want to see you again. I never want this to happen again. Like, I was just overcome by this um, very odd rage when I saw him at some point. And I mean, I was throwing things and nobody else was at the house. It was just me and him and nobody else was there. And I just like kind of threw this what people would call a hissy fit, but it got the point across of like, I'm done with this. I'm, I never want to see your face again. Um, and so he left and I, it was like, my parents came home and we never talked about it. Never. Did, like, did they know he had a seizure? Did, did no, he go to I the don't, hospital? Did, I don't think so. Um, I don't even remember fully. I don't think well, I think they knew the next day, but like in the night, I don't know that anything was communicated. Okay, so he just had a seizure. So he's had, well, he had a, he had a condition where he would have them randomly. Okay. But it was like, nev- it was like months apart. You never knew, maybe once a year kind of thing. So it wasn't like it was this totally, I mean, there, there was a, there was a medical reason, I guess, for it, but the timing of it to me felt very divine. Especially being told. Yes. Like pre like knowing before that this could happen and then it happening. Um, so when it happened, it wasn't, I think everybody was just like, oh, he made it through, but this is something that happens on occasion. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. I should have clarified that, you know, randomly had a seizure you but right. if it's not as random, then okay. So right. the if next day, like um, you basically kick him out and say, we're not doing this anymore. And again, this is another situation that your parents just put under the rug and never talk about. Yeah, just never. I mean, I think they had contact on the other side because they knew something had happened, but we never talked about it. Nothing was ever said. And I think I was just so... I was a few weeks from 18 at that point. And so I was so severely upset. I think they just kind of knew a line had been crossed and I wasn't like, I had tried to, you know, say no a few times. And then this hit a point where I was like, I'm not, I'm just not doing this anymore. And there was a hardness, I think, in me at that point that they kind of read to not cross. Um, So that I turned 18 several weeks later um, and that did help with some things because even though they would emphasize 18 didn't mean anything legally 
there's only so much you can do. You know, I mean, I, and so I had a few months until I got my diploma, um, which now I'm like, my diploma is literally a piece of paper off the internet. <laughs> but as a kid, it felt like a big deal. Um, so I, I waited it out and I went off. Um, I wanted to go to cosmetology school. They didn't want me to do that. I actually applied, got in, but my parents really didn't want me to do that. And, you know, as a child, you always want your parents to love you. Even if they've done terrible things to you, you want that acceptance. You want that love. And so they wanted me to go to this Bible college. And I agreed. I'm like, I'll do this for a year. And then hopefully, you know, things will be better. And I'll agree. And like, we can be on good terms and I can go do what I've dreamed of doing and that kind of thing. Um, and that's obviously I was naive and that's not at all how that went. Um, but I did meet my husband there. I, so we got married when I was 19 and I still, that was one step of breaking free. Um, because once I married him, my dad finally didn't see himself as owning me anymore. I was responsible to, or my husband was responsible for me. So that was a very like you said, kind of those invisible ties. It's like, it felt like a very clear sever of one step at that point. But I was still just not realizing how much mental mess I had an emotional mess I had to untangle. And it was several years. I had my first daughter when I was 21. Um, and that's really when things started getting more real was over that time because now I was responsible for this other child and I was responsible for how that child grew up in the world and what they experienced and what they felt. And we had a situation when she was around two and a half, between two and a half and three. And I had just had our second daughter. Um, she was a few months old and we had a situation with a family member where it came out that sh she had been we don't know the full extent, but one of our children had been inappropriately touched sexually in some way by a family member, an adult family member, and um, a teenager. So that that was when like crap hit the fan for me, and um, then when that was covered and denied, um, that was just another level of okay. I have I have a pivotal moment here to decide. Do I face this? Because how I face this depends on how my child faces this later in life. And it depends on millions of things that happen to my child from here on out, whether I deal with this or I don't. And I remember just asking myself these questions of, you know, what, what do I do? How do I handle this? And so I faced it head on. Um, and I wasn't able to prosecute because <clears throat> my eyewitness recanted. And so that was like a whole mess. Um, but I set some very firm boundaries, you know, from that point on. Me and my husband were very cautious about things. And then it was about two years later where a, another revealing of abuse within the family came out. And that was the point where I was like, okay, I'm, an, I'm a grown adult and you are all grown adults and you're all covering this and you can't tell me anymore what's okay and what's not. 
And I'm not going to just sit by and let this person continue to cause harm. I'm just not, you know, like it fell through the cracks where I wasn't able to prosecute on my child, but I have full knowledge of, you know, XYZ over here. And so I am going to do something about it. Um, And so it started with just like trying to confront it internally, trying to have hard conversations. um, And then eventually it did turn into a court battle. And I mentioned that because that is where, that's where just everything came apart. Like I had a moment of like my life just playing out like it was a movie. Like everything that I had told myself to survive as a child, like, you know, all the veil just falling off my eyes and seeing things as a parent and as an adult for the really for the first time. And I just, we lived in the country and I mean, I've never, I've never wept like that in my life. Like I just, I lost it. I just, I sobbed and I beat the ground and I screamed. And I mean, I was probably out of my home for two hours and I just couldn't, I couldn't rationalize it anymore. And I couldn't pull myself together either. It was like, I just had to, I had to see it. I had to feel it. I had to own it. And you know, crying is so therapeutic and getting those things out physically is so necessary to be able to own them and release them um, and take, just shed it. You know, it's like shedding it, you know, shedding tears is like just kind of shedding all, not all of it, but so much of the pain and trauma and the lies that you have believed over the years. And that, so that moment was just really, really raw and really pivotal for me moving forward. And it's like, after that, I just had a new strength and I knew that my life, like my trajectory was changing from here on out. And there were a a thousand little decisions that went into that. Um, But inwardly, I was forever changed. And at that point, when I could see, when I could see everyone for who they truly become, then I was started, I started to be able to realize what they had said about me wasn't true. And that's when I could start to replace like, Oh, like God gave me these gifts as a person. He gave me this resilience. He gave me this strong personality. You know, he gave me this um, intuition and this discernment from a young child, like those were gifts from him. I wasn't a fool because I used them. And um, I just, I mean, I just dove into it. Like I just dove headlong into it. And um, I made a decision that I was not going to let another person feel the way that I had felt. And I was going to use my money and my time and my voice to make sure that these other survivors knew that I believed them and that I loved them and that they were worth fighting for. Because I had been told my whole life I wasn't. And I knew they were being told the same thing. But I I knew that I had the opportunity and the resources to change that narrative for them. And, you know, even if I didn't get the outcome I wanted, and even if, 
lives weren't immediately changed in the snap of a finger, you never know how that ripple effect, you know, goes out, how far it goes out and what kind of change it can bring and what kind of seed it's planting in somebody's heart. And so I was in, we were in a court battle for, I mean, it wasn't super long. It was about nine months probably. And the the outcome was pretty good. We settled for terms and I was pleased. And then from that point, the trauma affected me. I mean, I once court was over, um, I actually walked out of the courtroom and that man who had sexually abused me as a teenager was waiting by my car. Um, he lived in a different state, like multiple states away, actually. And my family had brought him to court and had him waiting outside by my car when I got out. And you're already and married at this time, right? I'm already married. Right. He's married. He has kids. I'm married. I have kids. I haven't seen him since I was 17 and kicked him out of my house. <laughs> and I think that's when everything kind of came full circle for me of just like, I thought I just kind of had had this victory. Like me and my husband had just been high-fiving each other. I thought in some ways I was accomplishing what I felt the Lord wanted me to accomplish. I was healing, helping, providing healing for other people. And then like that monster came back out and was just sitting there. And um, I, within a few weeks, I started having like panic attacks because now I'm like, he, he's, he had my phone number. He knew where I lived. Like, and while he had never been physically violent, I just, my house had been broken into. I had been stalked. I had been harassed. I had been confronted in restaurants and screamed at and threatened. And it's like, I didn't know what was next. I hadn't, you know, I thought this was done. I was celebrating. And then, bam, I was just hit with this like flashback situation, you know? Um, And so while I thought I was, had made this pivotal turn, which I had in a lot of ways, but there's so many layers to trauma. And so while I had dealt with a lot of childhood traumas, new traumas were formed over those nine months. And so then I'm dealing with that whole level. And it was, I mean, it's just been, it's been a journey. It was a lot of trying to feel safe. We ended up moving. I changed my phone number, you know, got it down with their phone and um, obviously vetted all like my social medias and did all of that kind of thing. And really just kind of absorbed some inside myself. Like I, I just, I needed time. I needed to heal. Um, and it was a lot of just listening, listening to sermons, listening to affirmations, um, listening to God when he would speak to me. And in a sense, it was kind of like breathing and licking my wounds. <laughs> and then in a sense of letting those wounds heal and just trying to move forward a step at a time and create a better world for my kids. And, you know, being a mom and healing trauma at the same time is so, I mean, being a mom's hard enough, you know, without like my kids reminding me about when the police came to my house and people were banging on the door and being afraid to go. One of my kids was even afraid to go to school because people would be waiting in the school parking lot for us. And um, that's part of why we moved out here where we did, because sometimes you just, 
you just have to leave. You have to fully uproot and get a fresh start. And I know not everybody has that, you know, luxury. I'm really grateful I do. Um, but I had to know I was in a safe place. I needed to know I was in a safe atmosphere. I needed to know my kids were in a safe atmosphere. And then I had to own how bad it, I really was doing. And those were three really big things for me to get to where I am now. And so for me personally, what that looked like is moving to an entirely new state and starting over. Um, because everywhere I went, I was checking license plates. I was checking vehicles. I was going through store parking lots to make sure there wasn't anybody there that was you know, going to do or say anything. Um, I was going circles around my kids' schools. I was having to file police reports after getting them to school. And I just didn't want to live that life anymore. I didn't want my kids to live that life anymore. So those, those were three really necessary things that I needed to do. I needed them to be in a safe atmosphere where I wasn't paranoid that someone would come after them. And then I, I don't think I realized... And I don't think most people who have gone through trauma, because you, you, there's always someone who's gone through something worse, you, you think, you know? And so I would rationalize that I'm okay. And, you know, it's over and I'll be fine. And um, just last summer, even though I'm in a safe place, my kids are in a safe place, I was still having terrible panic attacks. And that goes back to that wiring of the brain and you know i'm 32 <clears throat> and for 31 years I, well i would say probably 29 years i had lived under some sort of threat so even if it wasn't in my home it was in my neighborhood or in my town or and i my body now even though cognitively i knew i'm safe and nobody can hurt me here and i have tools to protect myself I have four dogs, you know, like I have all these things in place, but my body was like, no, I, we're, we're always being threatened. We're always scared. We're always, well, our body bars. has stored memories. And so right. it does hold on to that stuff until yes. it is released. Yeah. So I've done some like traditional and some atypical therapies to try to release those things. Um, and they did really help for times. And I'm, you know, I'm so thankful for all the resources that are out there addressing trauma now. Um, but then I finally made the decision when I couldn't even drive my kids to school without almost blacking out that I decided to go on anxiety medication last fall. And, you know, I just, I think so many people, I know so many people who have gone through hard things, especially when you kind of, pride yourself in a sense of being resilient and being strong and facing things that you shouldn't have to face. Uh, you see that as a weakness. Um, but what I really realized is it's like, I didn't make my body this way. You know, I didn't make my brain this way. And I've put in some really hard hours of exercising and therapy and yoga and meditation and eating healthy, you know, all these things, which are amazing tools, utilize them all. Um, but sometimes your body just reaches a breaking point. 
and you need a little outside help and that's okay. You know, that's totally okay. And so that has been a huge healer, extra healer for me. I feel like I'm getting my life back. I'm, I used to not even be able to drive up mountains. And two weekends ago, I pulled a horse trailer down from the mountains with one of my good friends. And I was like, I came home and told my husband, I was like, I know this is probably not a big thing to you, but this is a big deal. Like I went down 5% grades pulling a horse trailer without an anxiety attack. And it's just those small victories mean so much when, you know, you've gone through such just sheer survival times. Absolutely. And so I just, I don't know, I just want to encourage people that, you know, even if you cognitively know, like I'm safe, my kids are safe, I'm doing okay. Like your trauma is still real. And what you've gone through is still real. And like you said, those things are stored in your body and you don't always have control of how they come out. And don't be afraid to ask for some help in those last few steps of healing. Cause it's, I feel like I'm getting my life back and I'm competing for Mrs. Wyoming this year and pulling trailers down from mountains and going hiking and just, I'm helping with the PTO with my kids school and you know, I'm networking with business owners through this running for Mrs. Wyoming and like getting to go to rodeos. And it's like, I can do all of that and just enjoy it and not have to be terrified that something irrational is going to happen because that's what I lived in constantly. I would just go hiking with my kids and think, oh, they're going to fall and die off that rock. And it's like, that's, yes, you need to be careful, right? But We don't need to live in that state of fear anymore. Yeah. Like I just, it was to a level of being way too much of a helicopter mom. Yeah. And they needed to be free to be kids. I mean, I was a wild feral child. So I'm like, if I survived, they're going to survive climbing some rocks, you know? Um, Well, I have two, I have a few, I have three questions. Um, One, well, one is, I guess, just a statement about the grief of when you said the veil kind of came off of your eyes and you really were able to see the truth of your past. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a huge process because you're right. We rationalize it. It's not a big deal. I can handle it. It's normal, whatever. But when you get Mm -hmm. to that point where you go, this is not normal. This is not okay. And you are now seeing your past in a way that you may have never even seen it before, you know, right. when you're going through it, are you saying I'm being abused or I'm being, you know, but right. when you look back and you go, Oh my gosh, that's, that's what was happening. There's mm-hmm. a level of grief that comes with that because it's like your whole worldview, the world, the trajectory of your world just mm-hmm. got shifted and oh, everything yeah. that you knew or thought was true is no longer true. And then, right. um, so that's a huge part of I think the the healing journey is mm-hmm. getting to that place where you look back and you see it through a new set of eyes. And that's yeah. when you can say, all right, I'm not going to repeat this. I often mm-hmm. say your why is born out of a blessing or a burden. So that mm-hmm. fire inside is either connected to like something that you did that you loved and you're like, I want more people to experience this. Or mm-hmm. a burden where you're like, no, 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 no. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do that at all. We're gonna make sure that my life goes in a completely different direction. Yeah. And so but grief is a part of it, you know, right. it's not like a quick decision. 
and you go, okay, now I'm going in this direction. You're grieving the loss of what you oh, thought sure. you may Perfect. have had. And then, you know, comes that was creating the new life. Uh, my second question or thought, I guess, is when was the, when did you decide, like, I'm no longer seeing my parents anymore? It was in that unraveling moment. So after um, the court hearing. Um, so even well, before... no, it, it was before court. It was before, before court. I filed. Okay. Yeah. So okay. the part of the reason I filed court was that day that I had just had that grief, like we just talked about in that moment, I received a message that validated my child's abuse. And that was when I was like, okay, this was not, this was a purposeful cover. And that's when I said, it is not safe. Like these are not safe people. And if they are not safe, then my kids are not going to see them. So I I gave a, um, and I still stand by it. Like I gave prerequisites for if contact was to resume. These were the steps that we needed to take together. And I will still hold to those if that ever comes, but it has still been a flat out. No, we'll never do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's when I decided. So my son doesn't even know what they look like. He's seven and doesn't even, which is just really sad. You know, it's really sad, but it was, it was necessary for them to have the life they have now. It was a hundred percent necessary. And, you know, my husband's like, I don't know if I'd go back and do it again, but I'm like, I would go back and do it over and over and over and over because it's, it is breaking off a generational pattern and starting a fresh one. You can't make sane of insane. And so going back and trying to be like, all right, well, they'll be good now, or we'll be healthy now, or we Mm -hmm. can be the, the, you know, I hear people tell me this all the time, we'll be a good role model for the crazy. Um, But it often just doesn't turn out in your favor. So that hard no um, is really what gave you a great emotional break, not for just you, but your entire family. Yes. Um, and then my one other question I had was, how are your siblings? So are they do are they did they break away as well, or are they believe this is normal and are they going to repeat it? Where do you think? It's kind of a mix. Um, <clears throat> there's a few that have totally bought in. This is what it is, and we'll stand by it till the death of us, and have really adopted that bitterness. Um, and then I have one that's kind of just, I call him the teddy bear of the family, like just kind of trying to play both sides. I think sees both sides, but um, because of how we were raised and not stick up for yourself, make decisions for yourself, you weren't allowed to do anything for yourself. Um, that's so ingrained. It's been difficult. Um, and then I have my youngest who I helped finish raising and we're super tight. And we have a really good relationship and um, he's just a really great, I mean, we've been through some insanely hard things together, um, but he's a great kid, great guy, and he's doing, doing well considering. And so we still talk with him and see him. So, yeah. Now, one thing you said at the beginning of, or maybe the more beginning of the story is that 
they, in other words, I'll rephrase it in my own words, but yeah, they did the best that they could with the information that they had at that time. And so you can take a look at their story and say, I don't agree with it. I don't desire this. This is not okay. But I have some understanding as to why they kind of, quote, turned out this way or why they were duplicating behavior, repeating behavior that they saw. To me, that is a huge level of forgiveness that you have been able to experience to not hold, like, hold on so tight to the fact that they are bad and they are bad to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like that in itself is a release of any of that bitterness and just says, you did the best that you could with the information that you had at that time and the coping skills that you had at that time and the way you were raised. And I do not choose this myself, but I'm mm-hmm. not going to hold, I'm not going to take it personally in a sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about your forgiveness journey? Yeah. So part of it started, I was seeing a, he's a chiropractor and he does some, like he calls it energy releasing. And I had a lot of pent up anger and and that's part of the grief process, right? I mean, that is going to happen. Um, But especially towards my mom. And it was causing physical health issues in myself. And so I started seeing him and I did some some like emotional release sessions. Is it with called him. emotion code? Um, that's not he never really gave it a term, I guess, but um it's using trigger points and our within our body, we hold certain traumas in certain parts of our body. So it's that concept. I know different doctors kind of call it different things. Biofeedback is one that I've heard of. Um, And so I just did a handful of sessions with him. And I, I mean, I said, even if it's just me speaking this and releasing this, it was effective for me to just admit I have been hurt and let down. I've been disappointed. um, But I'm going to breathe through this and we're going to release this together. And um, even that alone is really powerful. So whatever it was, I was grateful for it. Um, so that was really a first step. I felt like I was really able to like let go of that just really deep angst in those moments and breathe through them. And then exercise was huge and getting... I mean, I had so much anger and I was just overwhelmed with all the realizations that I was going through. And so um, working out, like I'd go to the gym and put some earbuds in and just work out and that helped get it out. Um, But then as far as the mental and the emotional, just... It has really been a lot of asking myself questions and trying to get to the root of why I feel ways and why, you know, having a physical trigger. Okay. Why does this bother me? What's the root of this? And really just doing that backtracking and then getting to the root and then combating it with something that's true. And, or if what happened and what triggered that is true, making myself feel safe in that, like this does not have to, you know, I was a child. I wasn't responsible for this. And really decoding a lot of that in my head. And that has 
that is, I think, what has helped me realize like I could have made different choices and I could have repeated the exact same pattern. So recognizing that I'm not superhuman and I'm really not all that different than the generations before me, I just paused and started asking myself some questions. And I said, I don't want to look like that. And I don't want to hurt somebody like that. So what do I do then? And you read, you pray, you go to therapy, you know, you ask yourself, okay, well, I probably want to do the opposite of that then. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's so simple, but so hard at the well, same time. Well, you go find people that you do want to be like, you hang out with yeah. them, you learn, you know, I do, you think you, you, there's a lot of ways to take that and shift it. But you're right. That this first comes the decision, and then comes the discovery. Where you're like, well, what do I want then? And then you kind of get mm-hmm. to go on a discovery of who am I and what do I really want my life to look like. Yeah, and just so one of my biggest role models um, is my kids' godmother, Bridget. That's part of why we moved out here was to be close to them because if something happens to us, that's who takes care of our kids. Um, And she's a lot older than me. She's like early 50s now. Um, But she took me in when me and my husband got engaged. I lived with them for a year. I was like nanny house cleaner in exchange for a room to live. And I just, I met her and I was like, I want, I want that. I want to be like her. And so much of my adult life has been that of just like, her speaking truth. I can go to her with anything. You know, my marriage can be on the rocks and I can go tell her all the hard truths and she's still going to love my husband and me at the end of it. And so having people in your life, even if it's just one, just one person who can speak truth and listen to your hard things and validate them, but then also tell you to pick yourself up and keep going. Like that's just, it's so important. And that's part of like why I'm running for Mrs. Wyoming. Um, I've chosen a nonprofit that prevents childhood sexual abuse. Um, why I share some of the things I do on my social media, why I wrote my book. Um, because I just, I just want people to know, like I needed somebody like that in my life. And when you come from such a religious sect where you are cut off from so many people, you can feel so alone. I mean, I've, I haven't met a lot of people um, who have you know, experience some, like some of the things that I have and had to take their parents to court and, you know, raise a teenager. And uh, it's just, you know, when you're 25 years old, like it's a lot. And I just want people to know, like, I was never alone and you are never alone. And by simply waking up and saying, I don't want that, you can be a completely different person. And it starts with the smallest everyday choices and then they grow from there to being 32 and you know I was asked to be on a podcast and writing a book and I was asked to come to a women's conference here in a couple of months and it's like it's just and I love it it's such a privilege um and I pray that it keeps growing just because I want people to know that you aren't alone in your grief and you aren't alone in starting over and if I can do it with like a third grade education, <laughs> you know, you, you can do it too. A hundred percent. Amen. Amen. I love that you found someone who um, really was able to help rebuild that cracked foundation of, you know, you are worthy. I am worthy. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. that relationship in itself was probably healing for you. Oh, totally. I remember being at Omer and I were engaged and my dad had just called and just reamed me over the phone because I wasn't planning the wedding exactly how they wanted. He wanted my mom to be my maid of honor. I wasn't allowed to get married here or there. It was like all these crazy things. Um, and he just reamed me and I came in crying and Bridget just looked at me and she's like, she said, that's not how parents talk to children. And that's not love. And that, you know, that's the first time anybody had spoke that to me. Like I had felt it was wrong, but she put it into words as a parent, you know, and, and was able to speak that into my life. And, um, She's just done that so many times. And so, it, you know, when you're healing, like you just have to hold on to those little words, like just something so simple as saying someone saying that's not true. Like just hold on to it for dear life <laughs> and just pray that it'll get you through another day until someone speaks a little bit more truth. Yeah. Amen. Well, oh my goodness, Hannah, thank you so much for sharing your story and um, not giving up not giving up on yourself, not giving up on your brother, on your marriage, on your kids. You know, I'm sure you had plenty of times where you could gone gone back into the chaos because that's what you were quote expected to do, but because you made that decision, the line has been drawn for generations to come. Now, not just for you, but for your siblings and your kids as well. So, yeah. be proud Amen. of the healing that you have done. And I do believe that this is just the beginning, right? Because you now yeah. are creating a platform where you get to tell other kids that they're worthy. Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. It gives me shivers. Ah, me too. <laughs> okay. Well, I know you have written a book, you guys, she wrote a book. Um, she has some e-courses and some of ways that she has already given back into this community to help people heal from the inside out. Um, her book is called Jesus and Me Covered in Pee. Um, tell us a little bit about your book and your courses. Yeah, so it's a short read, like two and a half hours. Um, it's a really, another synopsis of just when Jesus met me and what he brought me through. So there'll be some stuff um, that I shared today, not in the book. And then there'll be stuff in the book that I didn't share today. So definitely go get it. It's on Amazon. Um, you can look up my name, Hannah Redden, R-E-D-D-E-N, um, or you can look up the title, Me and Jesus Covered in P. It's got some laughs, probably shed a few tears. Um, and then togetherbrave.org um, is an anonymous site you can go to. It's a little bit more of a formal write-out of just the healing process the Lord took me through. Um, I'm on Instagram, um, where the Reddens grow. You can follow along with my daily life. I've got goats and chickens and mini horses and they're always keeping well, it lively you just had a goat here. video go viral. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My goats are famous. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Awesome. Well, I'm going to so. put all the links to the book and her e-course and um, social media so you guys can see her journey to Miss Wyoming and cheer her on and just be yeah, a part of the adventure. Awesome. Um, and I hope that it gives everybody listening hope, right? No matter, yeah. I truly do believe that no matter where you come from and what you've experienced, the power to take your life back um, mm -hmm. is, is within our grasps. Um, it's yeah. not easy. 
and it's painful and there may be lots of tears, but it's possible. So what would be a one last encouraging word that you would say to somebody who may have experienced trauma in their past as well? Well, my slogan for Mrs. Wyoming is only you define you. And I chose that because of everything we've talked about is my mom's words didn't define me. My abuse I can't remember doesn't define me. My abuse I do remember doesn't define me. Um, I decide what defines me. And so those are experiences that I can use and grow from, but they aren't who I am. And so don't ever think that where you come from or what someone did to you is who you are. Who you are is inside and that's something nobody can take from you. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Hannah, for sharing your story. Again, all of her links will be in the show notes below and we'll see you guys next week. All right. Thank you. Bye, Denise. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. I want to hear your aha moment from today's amazing episode. If you could leave a review at whatever podcast player you choose to listen from, Apple Podcast, CastBox, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you're listening from, leave a review and share with us your favorite part of today's episode. Thanks for hanging out. And remember to dream big.